you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Today we'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark 9, 14 through 29. Last week we saw Jesus take Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain where they witnessed Jesus' earthly body changed or transfigured into his supernatural body. Jesus was not reflecting the glory of God. He was producing the unsurpassable glory of God. He was emanating from him. Matthew tells us in his parallel account that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. Mark says in our text last week, the paragraph before we restart today, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, Jesus revealed to his three closest disciples that he is the glory of God in human form. Not only that, but also appearing in this scene were Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. And we learn in Luke that they were mainly talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John were absolutely terrified, realizing they were now in God's very presence. And what did that mean? That meant, as all Israelites knew, that they would not live through this experience. They knew what the Old Testament scriptures taught about sinful mankind's inability to be in the presence of God and his holiness and glory. So our friend Peter manages to make his tongue work, and he gives voice to a plan about Jesus making three tents or tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And what he was really trying to do was find some way to protect himself and James and John from the presence of God. Knowing that the Old Testament tabernacle served the function of being the place of mediating the gap between God and human beings. Actually, when you think about it, that was a pretty quick creative plan. Just didn't happen to be very good. God the Father put an end to this nonsense, and in chapter 9, verses 7 and 8 of Mark, we read, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. In other words, they were now alone with the bridge over the gap between God and humanity, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the tabernacle because he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the ultimate high priest who is himself the perfect sacrifice for our sin. 
When did these three disciples finally realize that Moses, by representing the law, and Elijah, by representing the prophets, had been summoned from the dead to affirm that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything to which the law and the prophets had pointed. Had they gotten this yet? No. But they're on the path. They're on that road. And Peter, James, and John did not die. Instead, they were surrounded and embraced by the brilliance of God's presence as he speaks to them of his love for his son. They have experienced true worship. Peter, James, and John have experienced true worship as they stand there in awe and in wonder. They've sensed and experienced the, the very presence of God in his glory. And what is this? This is a foretaste of being face-to-face with God forever and ever. The transfiguration was not, as we said last week, a, a miraculous parlor trick to convince these disciples of Jesus' deity. It was an experience, really, of, of collective worship that Peter, James, and John are going to need very soon as they face Jesus suffering and dying on a cross, something they never expected, something they did not sign up for. This was not in their plan. And now they all come down the mountain together, Jesus with these three, and they find the other nine disciples embroiled in a very frustrating situation in the middle of a great crowd, even arguing with the scribes, the teachers of the law. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 9, verses 14 through 29, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, this account on the heels of the transfiguration of Christ, which was witnessed by Peter, James, and John, actually provides vital information about what it means to experience God's presence. And you have to admit, the context of this is probably not what we expected to learn this in. For Peter, James, and John, experiencing God's presence in their mountaintop experience can we say this, is now brought down to earth in the middle of the reality of living in a sinful and broken world. What it means to experience God's presence kind of ties all this together. In verse 14, we find out that there's a huge argument going on between the scribes, the teachers of the law, and the crowd, and Jesus, Jesus' disciples specifically, who had remained back here and hadn't gone up on the mountain. These nine disciples had tried and failed to cast out a demon, and confusion is winning the day. Satan's motivation is always to destroy the image of God and mankind, something we need to remember. And anything he can do in this regard feeds his evil desire to triumph over God. So when Jesus' own disciples try and fail to cast out a demonic being, the scribes use this to do what? To defame Jesus, drag his name in the mud. And the watching crowd just is getting more and more confused about what's going on. But in verses 15 through 18, Jesus returns and he begins to sort out what's going on. Now, if this was you and I, and we were coming down the mountain after that kind of experience, we can't even imagine what that was. That's a foretaste of a foretaste of a foretaste for us. And we see all this going down at the bottom. Can you just hear our conversation? What now? What now? How crazy is this? Can we go back up? 
We don't like coming down from any kind of mountain top experience. But here they are. They were in the middle of it. The father of the affected boy explains the situation. And he does so in graphic detail. Which I'm sure when I was reading that out loud affected many of you in a much deeper way than you were probably planning. Every parent knows some of this. What it feels like. His account ends with, so I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Can you feel the pain of that statement? We find out in verse 29 that Jesus tells his disciples in private why this kind of evil spirit cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why? That was the answer. This kind can't be driven out by any kind for, uh, by any way but prayer. So guess what? The disciples had not taken into account. Jesus, this disciples here have been trying to exercise this demon without even praying. Now, this is another demonstration of their inability to deal with evil and suffering in the world. The reason they couldn't was the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus was going to have to die. They didn't see how weak and how proud they were. They were blind to their own true need. They underestimated the power of evil and overestimated what? Their own strength, their own ability. They tried, they did their best, sincerely, but they'd failed. And back in chapter 3, we need to take note of Jesus' commissioning of them. In verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, we read this, that they might, these guys that he'd chosen, be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. These men believed in the process. They believed in themselves, and they had been successful doing this kind of thing before. But they were not resting their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, with great sorrow, says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, we could spend a long time with multiple applications about this, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. Each and every one of us does this way too much. God does something, works in our lives, teaches us something great. We have some kind of neat experience, whether it's fellowship or God's power or something, and immediately we think we've arrived. We can handle it. And we go into that mode where we don't even pray to the author of our salvation before we do anything. Because we think we've got it. Well, 
then we find out that all sorts of other things happen to us and God gets our attention, usually in circumstances, situations, or things that we weren't planning on. If I ask you to raise your hand, if you've had to learn this lesson so many times you don't want to even try to count, every one of you would raise your hand if you were being truthful. All of us would. So we can't point our fingers too quick at the apostles once again because they just reflect our bent as well. So Jesus makes this really sad statement here. Faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? The answer to that is not very much longer Although we know that he sent the Spirit just for this very reason after he had risen. And as the boy is then brought before Jesus, the evil spirit recognizes where he is going and what happens. The Spirit immediately demonstrating, demonstrated the raging hatred the demonic realm felt towards Jesus. He convulsed the boy again, making him fall and roll around on the ground, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus gets more details from the father then, who tells Jesus about how the evil spirit has been doing this since the boy's early years and how the boy has been cast into fire and water to destroy him. And don't get the notion that Jesus didn't know this. He wanted the Father to say this out loud to get him thinking about what all was at stake. And we'll see, this Father and Jesus are now face to face. We read in verses 21, the second half of verse 21 through verse 23, this. The boy had often been cast into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Father says, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, and catch the tone, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now we need to look, stop right here and just look for a minute at this and to clear up some major misunderstandings. And to do that, I found a a really concise explanation by R. Kent Hughes. And finding a concise explanation about this particular verse is hard. Keyword, concise. This is one of the most abused verses in the Bible today. People have ripped it from its context and made it the rationale for saying that their wishes will come true if they can just... Mount enough faith. There are some who even teach that faith can control God. That if you believe enough, God has to do it. That is man-made, man-centered religion. The fact is, faith must never go farther than God's clear promises. For whatever goes beyond God's word is not faith but something else that assumes its appearance. For example, 
Say a parent is greatly concerned over a sick child's health and longs for the child's recovery. So he says to himself, I believe that Christ can heal him. I also believe that he will if I pray in faith. And I know that I will certainly be answered. Wrong. Such a prayer goes beyond God's word. The answer that is assumed will be yes, he will be healed. God may answer in another fashion, as in no or not yet. But the assumption we always make is that God doesn't answer our prayers, really, until it's a yes and I get what I want. Such a prayer goes beyond God's word. What does that mean? Certainly, Christ can heal his child, but Christ has not told him that his child will indeed be healed. Our faith can be then misplaced. This is where so many believers fall short. Yet there are times when we don't believe that God can do anything, which is the other extreme. There are souls we consider impossible for him to ever rescue. There are healings we think are beyond his power, and in this we also sin. We fail to believe the promises of his word or to pray in faith for their fulfillment, and greater things would take place if we would pray for them. Salvation of whole peoples, revivals, power in the church, miracles, both physical and spiritual. There are times when God reveals through his spirit that he is going to do a specific healing. And in that case, the believer can and must pray in faith. But is that what's going on here? What is going on here with Jesus? Well, let's look at this. The only person in this whole crazy scene at the bottom of this mountain who acknowledges his weaknesses and admits that he doesn't have what it takes to handle the suffering and evil that he's facing is the father of the boy. The father asks Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In other words, what is he saying? Would you heal my son? It's pretty straightforward. And Jesus said, if you can, because that's what he said, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father responds, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Meaning what? I'm trying, but I am so full of doubts. And then Jesus heals the guy's son rebuking the unclean spirit and commanding it to come out of the boy and never return. Well, let's look at this some more then. We need to realize that this is very good news for all of us and also understand exactly why it's good news. But first, let's go back and clear up this thing about the example It's not this example, the previous example, general example for us. Does this man have a specific promise from the Lord Jesus Christ 
that he is going to heal his son. Yeah, he does. He's standing right in front of him, and he's bringing him to faith. He's asking him what's happening. He's not giving him a conditional deal, just drum up enough faith and I'll do it. We'll get to that in just a second. So keep that in mind as we go forward here. Why is this good news? Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness. Just something that has been called humble dependence. But let's get a little more edgy. Someone else has called this repentant helplessness. And if you've been in a state of suffering, or you know somebody who is, that probably is closer to what your heart knows is true than something that we say a whole lot. Humble dependence. That nails it. But there's something about the phrase repentant helplessness that hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? We need repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. Now, what did Jesus not say to this father? And this will help you understand that Jesus did let him know. I'm going to do this, but I'm, I'm waiting here until you're going to believe that I'm going to do it. So he's, 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 the promise is right there in front of him. Jesus didn't say, I'm the glory of God in human form. Purify your heart. Confess all your sins. Get rid of all your doubts and your double-mindedness. Serve penance. Serve people down the block for three weeks. Once you've completely surrendered to me and can come before me with a pure heart, then you can ask for the healing you need for your son. See the difference? Jesus doesn't say that. He looks in this guy's eyes and he says, if I can, all things are possible with me. What does that mean? I'm going to do this for you. You believe me? That's pretty specific. And again, what did the father say? I am not faithful. He said, I'm riddled with doubts. I can't muster the strength necessary to meet all these moral and spiritual challenges. But what? But help me, Jesus. So what is this then? Folks, That's what saving faith looks like. Anybody that tells you you have to clean up your life and come perfect before you can say you believe in Christ is telling you a lie. Jesus came while you were his enemy to make you his own. What is necessary? Did you catch that? Repentant helplessness. He's honest. He's opening his heart. I believe you. Give me more belief. Help my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief part. This is saving faith. It's faith in Jesus. It's not faith in yourself. 
This man is not putting his faith in himself and his ability to make himself acceptable to God. That's the whole thing that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ amazing. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us. And if you wait for that, you will never come into the presence of God. Instead, you must acknowledge and admit that you are not righteous and that you need help. When you can say that, you are approaching God to worship. Who did Jesus get on more than any other group of people on the face of the earth when he walked it? Who? The people who said, we are righteous. The Pharisees and the scribes specifically and anybody else that fell into that category. His words were harsh to those people, trying to get them to see that they did not measure up on their own and that they could never measure up and that they had misunderstood the very book that they were claiming to be the only true interpreters of. The rich young ruler's story is right down the pike for us, and that brings it even into clearer focus. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And he knows the law's purpose, one of the main purposes was to make us know that we cannot measure up and that we need a Savior. And once you come to know Christ and his grace in salvation, the gift of his sacrifice that paid our penalty for sin... Then you are so grateful, you have a motivation, and you are being indwelt by the Spirit in His power to head the direction of obedience, but it's completely different. How many parents in here love it when your kid obeys only by their actions, and they're giving you the eye, and you know what's in their hearts? That is not fun. It is not joyful. And it is not going to bear good fruit. But if that kid comes back and obeys and they are repentant and it's breaking their heart, how do you feel about it then? Because they know you love them and they know you just saved them out of some trouble or whatever it was. It goes right to your heart. And we think we've got this figured out. God's the one that made us this way. He wants to know us, but he knows that we need to know him. He wants to show us his love and grace. Now, step back and look at this scenario in that setting. What is Jesus doing? He's coming down the mountain with three disciples who have just done some of the stupidest things on the face of the earth in the presence of him and his glory with Moses and Elijah there too and God speaking through this cloud that has terrified them to not even think they're going to live through the experience. And these guys just are like this. And Jesus patiently and lovingly. God's own voice says, this is my beloved son. What does that mean? We don't use the word beloved. It means that God loves his son and he's a couple of weeks away from dying on the cross 
which is the epitome of the history of mankind. It is the crux of all of history. He wants us to know him. Because he knows if we truly understand him and what he has done, that we will gladly head his direction because he's changed our hearts to be disposed toward him. And that our obedience will be out of thankfulness, gratitude, and a sense of wonder. And this kind of honesty helped me overcome my unbelief. Don't you love this father? This father loves his kid. He's willing to be honest and throw his whole life down before Christ. Who knows him anyway, but he didn't realize that to that degree. He sounded like us. And he's saying... Help me. Yeah, I know you can. And Jesus, the minute after he says, all things are possible, man, he heals that kid right there. And the whole crowd and all of his disciples, what are they thinking? Always ask that. We don't know, but we know that God is preparing them because they're going to fail, 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 fail. No, they'll fail the rest of their lives in different ways. But he's preparing them to get through this horrible thing to them where their whole dream, their whole life is shattered. They're running because people are trying to kill them. They just killed Jesus. Why not us? And he's getting them ready. How's he getting you ready? How's he getting me ready? Get the point? Jesus' words, how long am I going to be with you? Oh, faithless generation. Who do they apply to? Yeah, you're looking at him. Me? You? He is so patient. He is so faithful. He knows what's going on. He is not asleep at the wheel. We've got to be willing to acknowledge that we're not righteous. And we can stand before God because we are clothed in the righteousness of someone else. And his name is Jesus Christ. We bring nothing to the table. We are clothed in his righteousness. And that should melt our hearts in such a way that we can use phrases like humble dependence upon God to describe our day-to-day existence. Or get really radical and say repentant helplessness. You realize those are almost the world's version of curse words in our culture. Those are not two things that anybody aspires to but they should mark us. Now it's time to remember this in a little deeper way, point from last week, what God was doing. He was strengthening Jesus also in his final preparation for his mission. That's the main reason. The the disciples, yeah, but come on. Jesus was 100% human as well as 100% divine. The 
strengthening Jesus for the infinite suffering that he would endure in dying on the cross and defeating all evil, to help us become more aware of the cost of what was just ahead of Jesus, the cross. Consider that on the cross, Jesus will be forsaken. But on the other side of the coin, he's lived for ages, endless ages in the glory of his Father. And we just saw him on the mountain surrounded by God in his glory. Mountain glory, Jesus forsaken on the cross. And on the mountain we see the life that he always had led forever and ever, embraced and clothed with love and the light of God. And on the cross he'll be what? Naked. In the dark. Contrast? Yeah, just a little. The great question is why did Jesus put him all put himself through all this? Do you, do you realize what the answer is? Why? Paul saves us and he answers the question in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. What's the next phrase? Nailing it to the cross. The it being Jesus Christ, his son. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In other words, evil, the mask was torn off of evil and defeated on our behalf at the cross. So what God did in strengthening Jesus on the mountain through his spirit for his mission on the cross, he can do also in us, empowering us to face evil and overcome our own suffering. Not the same way or in the same degree, but he can. Explain it this way. You know in your head that God loves you. But sometimes the Holy Spirit makes it especially clear that this is really and truly the case. True? I hope there may be some who haven't got quite there yet. In your darkest hour when you think it's gone and you are so scared, you're petrified. Have you known the presence of God in those times? Did all of a sudden he just make himself there? Not visibly, not talking audibly, but did you know his care, his sovereign power, that he really does have it enough to just make you not, you can't even respond hardly? What is that? Sometimes the Holy Spirit makes that clear. It's unconditional and permanent and intimate because in some form or fashion, he gives you a little foretaste of his love. 
for you that he gave to his son. You, you may know in your heart in a different way that you're kept in him. Do you understand what kept means? You're kept in him. The psalm, fortress, refuge, all those words, kept in him. How about you're his son or daughter? Does that change your misunderstandings about who you really are? I can still hear a speaker from college that just looked at all of us and said, you are a son of the king. Or you are a daughter of the king. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I forget it all the time. How about you're experiencing the truth that he would go to infinite cost and infinite depths not to lose you because he's already done that for you in Christ. Didn't have to do it again. We just have to remember it. And that's a foretaste of your internal inheritance of Christ that he can provide to his own people in this life. Foretaste. It's at his timing. You can't make it happen, but he will provide little encouragements to you where you know his presence. Now, you can also say it this way. When you've pursued God in this repentant helplessness, You know what that really is? It's worship. Every time you sense his embrace, your soul will shine a little bit brighter with his reflected glory. You're you're reflecting it. It's coming from him. And you will be the slightest bit more ready to face whatever life has in store for you. And most of you know that. But like most of us, we want that 100% of the time, all the time, every minute. Now, this was brought home especially to Peter, James, and John as they came down from this mountain and found themselves face to face with this father who approached Jesus, and they saw demonstrated in this man this attitude of repentant helplessness. And instead of being in a perpetual state of the mountaintop glorious experience they just had, they were here given something that every one of us experiences all the time. What's that? A real life, messy, and painful look at how an honest, forthright, humble man approached Jesus in his helplessness and was brought into Christ's presence and love. This is an example for us, but we probably got some of our own. We know from the rest of Mark 9 and following that this lesson was far from being learned by these guys. The disciples are very soon after this episode embroiled in an argument over which of them was the greatest. Have you read the next couple of paragraphs? What are y'all doing? Uh, We've been arguing over who's the greatest. We would have been going, I give up. Jesus did not. 
He still loved him. He kept walking with him. He brought it out, showed him how ridiculous that was. Does that sound very much about how he deals with us in grace, patience? Yes, it does. And when Jesus was arrested, a couple of pages from now, Peter denied he even knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter suffered the agony of his actions before the risen Christ sought him out on the seashore And you can't read that without losing it. Praise our Lord for his faithfulness to us and his patience with us. And there's a word for that that's all over the Psalms. In the English Standard Version, it's translated as steadfast love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, approaching another rich passage, rich in so many ways, it touches so deeply. We read things like this, and we want to argue about the exact time when the man believed and how much did it matter and whether there's another, another condition to praying for this type of evil spirit to get him out and why the texts say this or a couple don't. God, help us see what's going on here. I mean, really see. We see true worship happening between a man who is in agony over his son. And we see Jesus meet him in the midst of a crowd that is just can only be described as chaos and confused and disciples that are still looking like they're in first grade. Oh, God, we pray that we would have our eyes opened by you and your spirit attending his word, that you would make us aware of our constant need for you, our helplessness, and that people would would notice that there's some humility in us that wasn't there before as we recognize that we must depend on you, and it's a glorious thing to know you and your love and to depend on you utterly. And then we know how you use us in your power in little ways mostly, but just just extending your grace and love to the people around us, standing up for what you know is true, whatever you call us to do. And we pray that you would guide us as we try, as we try to understand and ask you to open our hearts and our eyes to uh, what you called us to do as a church, as a group of individuals in this state of a process of being sanctified for a future eternity in your presence. Encourage us in these ways with the truth of what Christ has accomplished and who we are in him. We just ask this in his precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.